All right, welcome back to Fellowship of the Research Podcast. My name is Sasha Neuer. And I am Megan Ward, and we are so excited to have you back for our upcoming episode. Anything exciting happened over the last week, Megan? Well, just today, I learned that March Mammal Madness might be coming back soon, so I'm very excited for that. I'm so excited for March Mammal Madness. I've hosted it with our lab the last couple of years. I just can't wait to see which animals would win in hypothetical battles. I'm just always so excited about it. (laughs) If you are a football fan and also an ecologist or maybe just an ecologist, you should totally look into March Mail Madness because it is so fun. And if you have any questions, you can always reach out through the podcast and Sasha can get back to you. We'll include a link to March Mail Madness in the show notes and I'm sure we will be talking about it as the season continues. For now, sit back and relax. We are going to learn all about the life of turkeys today. Okay, Kayla, do you want to take a second and just introduce yourself? Sure thing. So hi, my name is Kayla Martin, and I'm a master's student in the Environmental and Life Sciences program. So originally, a fun fact about me was going to be a little more of a sad fact, which was that I had never seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies, but that's no longer accurate because, as you both know, I watched Fellowship of the Ring just the other day. So (laughs) my fun fact is that my favorite item of clothing is a ball cap with a toad embroidered on it. Have you ever been on a podcast before, Kayla? I have never been on a podcast before. So when you're not focusing on grad school, what else catches your interest? Do you have any hobbies? Well, when I'm not focusing on grad school, or maybe more likely procrastinating some aspect of grad school, You can find me outside doing things like observing wildlife, camping, skiing, and biking, or indoors doing things like climbing, listening to music, and drawing. What is your favorite animal to observe in the wild? Ooh, well... Can't say turkeys because you I can't say turkeys. (laughs) Okay, well, I do love looking at birds, but I also love looking for amphibians and reptiles. Hence the toad on the hat. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, my lucky toad hat. Can you give us a bit of information about your past research history? So where were you before you came to Trent? Well, before I arrived at Trent University, I did my undergrad at the University of Guelph. There I was involved in a variety of research and monitoring projects, both through co-op work terms and job contracts. So these included things like salamander monitoring and a reptile road ecology program. Also in my undergrad, I worked as a field tech on a project studying two amazing bird species, the common nighthawk and the Eastern Whippoorwill. And then the following school year, I worked with some of the data I helped to collect, and I did an undergrad thesis on whippoorwill habitat selection. I just had a quick question. Can you explain what a whippoorwill is for people (laughs) that are not familiar with birds? So a whippoorwill is a type of bird. They look like a tree branch, and they (laughs) blend in really well with tree branches. They're sort of a mottled brown, and they have sort of a wide head, a small beak with these like whiskers off the side, and it's a type of bird that is active at dawn and dusk. They love to eat things like moths, and they're a species at risk in Ontario, so, you know, that's why this research was important on them, but I definitely recommend that listeners go and Google Eastern Whippoorwill. You will fall in love with this bird. But with all of these experiences, it felt like I was always joining partway along, and I never really had the chance to see a project through from start to finish. With my master's, I'm designing and implementing 
conducting my own research project and truly seeing it through from start to hopefully finish. <laughs> and this makes it different from what I've done previously. So you started your master's last January. So you've been here for about a year and a couple months now. So far, what has been the best part of your grad school experience? Well, research aside, probably the best part is that I've met a lot of wonderful, interesting new people here. Yes, that includes both of you. <laughs> and it's been nice having opportunities to be social and have fun, sort of help balance out the work. I feel like we've heard a trend, maybe not in the people we've interviewed so far, but just in general, that grad school can be semi-lonely. So it's nice hearing the people we interview say that having social interactions and connections has been a really positive part of their grad school experience. Well, my main research project is focused on roost sites used by wild turkeys, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Now, I figure many listeners know this, but just in case, I'll mention that we have wild turkeys here in Ontario and a good population of them in the Peterborough region. So wild turkeys, which I usually just refer to them as turkeys, they're big birds, and most of the time they stay on the ground and just walk wherever they need to go. However, they can fly, and they will use their wings to get them up into tree branches branches at night and they spend the night sleeping in tree branches and this behavior is called roosting. What I've noticed since I started to study turkeys is that they don't always roost in the same tree every single night. They might roost at one location for several nights in a row and then for a few nights they might roost a couple hundred meters away at a different site and then they might return to the original roost site. And so I'm curious to know if there might be reasons for switching roosts and what those reasons might be. And one potential factor Factor that might influence the trees turkeys choose to roost in is something called microclimate. So my research explores whether microclimate might differ between the trees that turkeys are roosting in and other trees that turkeys could choose to roost in but apparently are not choosing. And I'll go into depth about microclimate a bit later. <laughs> Can you tell us what program you're in, what year you're in, and who is your supervisor? I'm just starting my second year of my master's in the Environmental and Life Sciences program, and I am co-supervised by Dr. Jeff Bowman and Dr. Gary Burness. Jeff is with the MNR, and then Gary Burness is with Trent University. Jeff has a variety of different research projects on the go. He's doing some work with flying squirrels. He's got some students doing other things like muskrats and turkeys, of course, and then Gary Gary Burness is a lot of physiology work, so he's got some students studying fish, zebra finches, puffins even, so a variety of research projects in both of those labs. Awesome. So any potential incoming grad students who are interested in small mammal work, flying squirrels, a little bit of wetland, and or physiology, you'd be welcome to reach out to Kayla or either of the professors because they may have a bit more information for you. So let's back up a little bit here and start with in general, what types of trees are turkeys preferring to roost, aka sleep in? Well, previous research tells us that there are a few factors that seem to contribute to defining a good roost tree for a turkey. In general, turkeys roost in different types of trees, and what makes a good roost tree seems to be a little less about the specific tree species and more about a combination of characteristics related to the tree and the surrounding space. So, for example, turkeys usually prefer larger, taller trees with sturdy horizontal branches that are easy to access. 
trees are strong, my lord. Their roots go deep. And around here, types of trees that often meet these criteria are deciduous trees like sugar maples or big tooth aspens. But then there are bonus points if the tree is located close to food sources, especially in winter when snow cover makes it harder for the turkeys to find food on the ground. Okay, so do turkeys roost in a group or are they doing that on their own? Well, turkeys are social birds and most times of the year they can be found in flocks that range in size from a few birds to more than 30 birds. Now, flocks typically roost together, but the turkeys value their personal space, and so they don't huddle and cozy up to each other. Instead, you might get several turkeys in the same tree, but they're on different branches, or sometimes they'll spread themselves among a few trees at the same site. So when I picture a turkey, they're huge birds, and I can't really picture them flying like a finch or a raven or even a Canada goose. So how are the turkeys getting into the trees? You said they can fly. I don't really believe you though. You're absolutely right that they don't have the same grace or agility of a small songbird. And so that's why roost tree accessibility seems to be a pretty important factor in roost site selection. And so it's not always easy for the turkeys to get into the trees. Like you said, they're big birds. I mean, an adult male turkey, also called a tom, can weigh up to 20 or so pounds. And so while turkeys can fly, yeah, they're not the most agile. And definitely if you see a turkey flying, it's kind of like, oof, that bird is putting in effort. I wasted on cross country. We dwarves are natural sprinters. Very dangerous over short distances. Turkeys look for shortcuts to make things easier. So if there's open space near the tree, they'll use that as a sort of runway. And at that point, they'll have the space to slowly gain elevation as they fly towards the tree. Now, if the tree is on a slope, the turkeys might walk upslope of the tree so that they've already gained some height. And then they'll turn around and they'll fly across towards the branches of the tree. And then lastly, turkeys might take what I like to call the stepladder approach. And if there are nearby structures Structures, the turkeys will sort of hop and fly from one structure to another, making their way up towards the target branch. So for example, if there are some leaning or fallen trees nearby, or maybe trees with lower branches, turkeys will use those for their stepladder approach to get into the higher branches of the roost tree. Okay, so we've learned a little bit about the types of trees turkeys sleep slash roost in. We've learned while they don't cuddle, there'll likely be a couple of them in a tree if that's the habitat being provided. You mentioned in the general overview of your research that you're interested in studying the microclimates of these trees. So what is a microclimate and why is it important to understand microclimates of potential turkey habitat? Well, we can break down the word microclimate to start. So we have micro, which refers to something small, and then we have climate, which refers to the usual weather conditions in an area. So microclimate is all about the usual weather conditions occurring at a small scale or a very specific location. So for example, think about how it feels on a hot, sunny summer day when you stand out in the open compared to standing in the cool shade of a tree. That is an example of microclimate. And I'm interested in exploring microclimate with turkey habitat because it's an opportunity to fill a bit of a knowledge gap. Turkeys are a popular bird. They're found across North America and they're an important game species, meaning they're popular for people to hunt. So there's been a good deal of research already, but no one's really investigated whether microclimate is very relevant to roost habitat. And if it is, it's just another thing to consider when making decisions about how land is managed and protected. How do you think these habitats will differ when 
you actually get into all the nitty gritty details of this? Well, the three measures of microclimate that I'm focusing on are air temperature, precipitation, and wind speed. And I think only some of these might differ between roosts and non-roosts. I'm not convinced that there will be a huge difference in temperature. Temperature on the scale of microclimate is usually related to sun exposure, but when the turkeys are roosting at night, the sun isn't out to influence temperature anyway. Uh, The other thing that might influence temperature is elevation, but anyone who's looked into downhill skiing near Peterborough would know that it's pretty flat around here and we don't really have major changes in elevation across our landscape. Next is precipitation and this is a bit of a tricky one. I imagine it would be easier for turkeys to maintain their body temperature if they're not damp from rain or snow. However, turkeys are pretty tough birds. They can handle a lot and they have good insulation from their feathers. So I'm not really sure what to say and I'm curious to see if precipitation differs between the roost sites and the non-roof sites. And then lastly, we have wind speed. And this is one where I think there may be some differences. There was even a recent study involving turkeys showing that they stick to the forests instead of the fields on cold, windy winter days. Do they make similar decisions when they choose a tree to roost in at night? Maybe. I can tell you that I've seen turkeys roosting in eastern white cedars, especially in winter. And these cedars, they're not the biggest, most sturdy trees, but they are coniferous trees, so they keep their leaves in winter. It's possible that turkeys are choosing these trees because the leaves help block the wind on cold winter nights. Sleep, little shirelings. Heed no nightly noise. So how are you going to track these turkeys? You want to know where they're roosting, where they're going, where they're not roosting. How do you actually track them? And then also, how are you measuring the microclimates? Like, do you have a device? Are you going up there with a little thermometer? What are we looking at? Those are both good questions. So how do I know about these roost sites? Well, we have location information on some turkeys that were outfitted with special GPS tracker tags. And for listeners that heard your first episode, these turkey tags are quite similar to the tags that your guest Lynn Brown was using with her oyster catchers. So these are lightweight, they're less than 3% of the turkey's body weight, and the turkeys wear them like little backpacks. And this turkey tagging work, by the way, occurred under ACC approved protocol number 27862. If you're a scientist, you know you have to throw that in. (laughs) (laughs) And so these Turkey backpacks function in two ways. First, they communicate with satellites to save a GPS location for the turkey at regular intervals. But in order to access that location information, I have to get within 100 meters or so of the turkey so I can use special equipment to remotely download the data off the tag. And so this is where the tag's second function comes in. And the second function is that the tag emits radio waves and I use special equipment to listen for these signals and hone in on the turkey. And this is called radio telemetry, which is a pretty common method for tracking animals in wildlife biology. I have to give a special shout out here to Jen and Lizzie, who tracked turkeys in 2017, 2018, and 2019, and shared their data with me so that I would have more roost sites to investigate. An extra special shout out to Jen Basie, who will be appearing on one of our upcoming episodes for Turkey Time Part 2. So make sure to tune in for your favorite turkey time. So I 
I looked at the location data for multiple turkeys and figured out where they were roosting at night and that's how I determined the roost sites. So now I'm going out to these roost sites and I'm setting up mini weather stations to measure microclimate. And these mini weather stations consist of a small platform about half a meter across on which there is a little device with a wind vane. The device measures air temperature and wind speed. This platform component hangs off a tree branch, and then it was a little bit tricky to figure out a good measure for precipitation, but in the end, settled on a very high-tech method of collecting snowfall or rainfall in a bucket, <laughs> and then measuring the volume of water. So when you're at these roost sites, are the turkeys there currently, or they're just places you know turkeys have been in the past? These are generally places that we know turkeys have been in the past. Some of the sites that I go to are still used by turkeys and this happens because turkeys have favorite roost sites like traditional roost sites almost that they keep coming back to again and again so these favorite ones where the turkeys are frequenting I tend to see some evidence of use I will see maybe turkey droppings on the ground or tracks in the snow and then some of the ones that are used a little less frequently I don't always see evidence of turkeys there but we know from the tag data that turkeys did use it for some time so while we were doing our background research for this episode and learning about what you do, we found out that you actually do field work all throughout the entire year. So why is your field work so intensive? Yeah, I do field work year round and thinking on it now, I think I've had at least one day of field work nearly every week for the past year. Oh. <laughs> what a realization that is. <laughs> but it's all because these birds won't take a darn vacation. They are non-migratory, so they're here year round and it means that I track them year round and as well I decided to investigate roost site microclimate in winter and summer because these seasons capture both ends of the climate spectrum that the turkeys would be exposed to. So most people are out here working in teams so they can split the work a little. Is it literally just you out there every week tracking these turkeys? Yeah it's just me. I, I mean I've had some help from some MNR summer students before which was nice. I do also have my field tech turkey lurky who I brought with me today. <laughs> Turkey Lurkey is a beanie baby that sits on the dash of the truck and provides some company for me as I'm out there doing my field work. Turkey Lurkey is arguably the cutest beanie baby I've ever seen. And if you're interested in getting a visual, please check out our Instagram, FOTR Podcast, because we will be posting photos. So you've done a ton of field work, obviously. You're over a year into your master's and you have an incredible amount of field work under your belt. Do you have any fun or wild field work stories? I do have a pretty interesting story that's recent, so I figured I'd share that one. I was driving down one of the country roads in my study area, and I spotted two turkeys in a field of cut corn. They were in the middle of the field eating leftover bits of corn, but they were fairly close to the road. So I pulled over, wound down the window, and I used my binoculars to take a look at these turkeys. As I'm doing that, I see something in my peripheral, and I look up, and I see a bald eagle above headed towards the turkeys. As the eagle begins to swoop down, the turkeys notice and they scatter. So one turkey flies towards the hedgerow along the road, and then the other goes in the opposite direction toward a woodlot, a little farther away at the far edge of the field. And these birds are booking it. I have never seen a turkey fly so fast. Okay, these birds, they can fly. And the eagle pursues the turkey that was headed towards the woodlot. So the turkey headed toward the hedgerow closer to me, makes it safely into the 
shelter of the hedgerow, but he's making a fuss and he's doing what's called the putt call, which turkeys do when they're alarmed. So he's obviously quite stressed out. Meanwhile, the eagle closes in on the turkey headed towards the woodlot. And I'm sitting there going, am I about to watch a turkey get killed by a bald eagle? The eagle got really close, reached out with its talons. And I thought that that was it for the turkey. But I kept watching and I see this turkey reaches the woodlot and goes low into the brush into the safety of the trees. And the eagle swoops up, flies back towards the hedgerow, but realizes that that other turkey is now well hidden in the hedgerow and it's no use. So the eagle flies back in the direction of the river and the two turkeys survive. And I'd heard stories of eagles attacking turkey, but I never thought that I would see an attempted attack in person. Oh my God, you're almost a murderer witness. I know. I was <laughs> wow. like, am I, am I supposed to like phone someone or something? Get out of your car waving your arms. Yeah, Don't I know. Him. I was like, what do I do? What else are natural predators of turkeys? Because you said they're so big, they sleep up in trees. So what are natural predators for turkeys? Well, for adult turkeys, the main predator around here would be the coyote. And so coyotes, they're not necessarily getting turkeys that are roosting. And part of the reason turkeys do roost in trees is because that is safer than just sleeping on the ground. But coyotes will attack turkeys on the ground during the day when the turkeys are out and about. And then turkey eggs and young turkeys, which are adorably called poults, they have a lot of predators because they're small. Everything from foxes to raccoons to skunks to crows, like all kinds of stuff. It's tough to be a small turkey. In this economy, it's tough to be a turkey. (laughs) these days. (laughs) So Kayla, what is the overall goal of your master's work? The goal in terms of, I guess, advancing science is to help fill this gap in our knowledge about whether microclimate is a factor influencing turkey roost site selection. And again, this could help us figure out which sites should be left alone as good turkey habitat. But more of a personal goal for my master's work is to gain project management experience. And I'm definitely getting that experience right now. Okay, so this is the Lord of the Rings segment, and as always, we have to ask our guest, who is your favorite Lord of the Rings character? Okay, well, based on only having watched one, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, I will do my best to answer that. Now, in Fellowship of the Ring, there was this big fuzzy moth that flew to Gandalf, and Gandalf reached out and caught it midair. And I, I really like that moth, but if you want a real answer, I guess I could say Aragorn, maybe. He's pretty independent, but once he's with the group, he steps up as a strong leader, but he doesn't let that get to his head. And as a bonus, his skills as a tracker would be so great for turkey tracking. That's so true. I didn't even think of that. As an ecologist, yeah, we all want to be Aragorn. So much to the dismay of Sasha and I, Kayla cannot necessarily be considered a Lord of the Rings fan, considering we forced her to watch the first show not the first yet, movie. you guys. It's yeah, yeah, happening. It really As is. a lab, we've decided to have a Lord of the Rings marathon so that she can watch all the movies, but it's a long-term process. So we're turning the questions around a little bit. Can you describe the top two characteristics, top three, whatever, of the turkeys you study? And then we are going to guess which Lord of the Rings character we think best represents your turkey. Okay, I love this question. Turkeys are social birds, but they do have a bit of a hierarchy within the flock. So some birds are more dominant than other ones. They are wary of their surroundings, they're quite watchful, and they like to eat. They like to find food. Well, the liking to eat leads me to a hobbit but I feel like hobbits are not watchful you know they just go about their day and they're not like 
like figuring out what thing is gonna come kill them next, like a dwarf or an elf might. I feel like they're more on guard. Intuitively, I wouldn't have thought that turkeys were elf-like, but I feel like but I'm, I'm being drawn towards the elf. I I kind of am as well. Yeah, like I love social. That for them. Yeah. They work well together, but there is still a hierarchy and they follow that. I'm getting a bit of an Elrond vibe where we've got a very fancy man that's at the top of this hierarchy. (laughs) Turkeys are fancy. I mean, if you see a tom displaying feathers all fluffed out and everything, it's pretty fancy. When I'd argue Elrond is the most watchful of most of the characters in Lord of the Rings. These tubby little turkeys that can barely fly their way into a tree inside truly represent these graceful, agile elves that we have all come to love from Lord of the Rings. I love that. (laughs) In Lord of the Rings, there's a team of different characters that all work together to accomplish the same goal, which is called the Fellowship. Do turkeys work together or are they more of an independent species? Well, turkeys are social birds and most times of the year they are found in their flocks. They all share similar goals of finding food and not getting attacked by predators. And they kind of do work together in that sense. So by being in a flock, they can help each other watch out for predators and you've got more individuals looking for food. And so I would say, yes, you could say they do work together. Because they work together, do you think if a group of turkeys had to get the ring to Mordor, would they succeed? Sadly, no. No. It's a harsh reality. I don't don't think so. They'd get distracted by a pile of corn somewhere. So in honor of you watching your first Lord of the Rings movie, we do have a few questions for you related to the franchise. There's no pressure. They're just fun. Our first question for you. Do you remember which birthday Bilbo is celebrating in the first movie? 1100. 1100. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You're pretty close. Yeah, 111. I feel like we're giving that to Didn't you. Didn't he say like 1100? He did, but he, he was drunk. 111. So 111. there you go. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> close. Our next question for you is actually related to the next movie. But your favorite character, apparently. The actor that plays Aragorn actually broke multiple bones in the second movie. Can you guess what one of those bones was that he broke? Collarbone? No. Oh. Go think smaller. Wrist. <laughs> think lower. <laughs> A toe? Yes! <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yes, in the second movie, he is kicking a helmet and he breaks his toe. And the scream you hear is his actual scream because he broke his toe. So you could say they really totaled his foot. <laughs> you could say that, but should you? <laughs> okay, final question for you. Your favorite character is in fact the moth that comes and rescues Gandalf, which we can all appreciate as biologists. We love a good moth. <laughs> Do you remember what the function of the moth was? No. <laughs> uh, just, uh, we were having a conversation about the moth and I missed what, what was actually going on. That's okay. We'll fill it in for you. Yeah. So the moth, I think Gandalf talks to him a little bit, you know, like mind to mind, man to moth. As you do. <laughs> he goes and gets the massive bird. The moth goes, gets the big bird that Gandalf turkey? then flies. Turkey-like? <laughs> we could Wouldn't say it's turkey-like. <laughs> And then that rescues Gandalf. Oh, very cool. Yes, he plays quite a pivotal role in the fellowship. I would say that that's justified, that my favorite character could be the moth. Oh, 100%. Fun little fact about the moth as well. The moth is the actor, if we can say he is an actor, that spent the most amount of his life on set because he was born, was used on set, and then died very shortly after. Oh my goodness, what Mm -hmm. a dedicated actor. That's what made the Lord of the Rings, the original franchise, so good, is they used a real friggin' moth for that one scene. 
seen. Do we know what kind of species it was? I think it's a polyphemus. Oh, very cool. I don't know the species. Family polyphemus, yes. You passed our task. Good job. (laughs) So if the listener should remember one thing from this episode, what would that be? Turkeys are strange but endearing. Oh, and if you see them, tell them I say hi. Where can our listeners contact you if they're interested in connecting with you or if they want to learn more about turkeys or if they see a turkey and they want to tell you about it, where can they get in touch? Two options would be through email. Also, I am on Twitter. So at kmartin underscore ecology. And we'll include the links to Kayla's social medias down in the show notes. Awesome. Okay, I think Thank you so much for tuning in, and we really hope you liked today's episode, learning all about roosting locations for turkeys. Thank you so much to Kayla. Thank you so much to Sadler House for hosting us. And of course, thank you to you for tuning in. If you want to get in touch, you want to learn a little bit more about turkeys, or perhaps you also are interested in March Mimmel Madness, like we mentioned at the beginning, please feel free to check out our show notes for any contact information. You can also reach us at FOTR, Fellowship of the Research, podcast on Twitter and Instagram. We hope you have a great week and as always, you shall pass. Names for turkeys. Adult male turkeys are called toms. Young male turkeys are called jakes. Young female turkeys are called jennies. Recently hatched turkeys are called poults. But you know what I noticed is that there isn't a fun nickname for adult female turkeys. They're often called hens, but like it's not a fun name. So I propose that they are called Henriettas, which can be shortened to hens. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) 